0: You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. It happened during a normal, unremarkable Sunday on September 20th, 1931. Three professor friends were walking the grounds of their English college, breathing in the crisp fall air, watching as the wind effortlessly scattered smatterings of leaves across their path. The conversation centered on the subject of narratives, stories, and the way that they communicated foundational truths about what it meant to be human, the way that they spoke to them on a deep and profound level. And eventually, they meandered their way to one particular and prominent story, the story of Jesus, the story of the Bible. And two of these professors at the time were active and devout Christians, but the third wasn't. So the conversation was fairly fascinating. Questions flew back and forth between them. Literary insights were shared, personal anecdotes and experiences were called upon. The conversation continued into the evening. They went to one of the professors' homes that night, and something happened as they continued. In that third non-Christian professor, a fire of sorts was sparked. And only a few months later, he chose to commit his life to following this Jesus. And here's the kicker on this story. Most of you in this room probably know this professor. His name's C.S. Lewis. He's one of the most profound and well-known, one of the most uh, noteworthy Christians of the 20th century. His literary genius has revealed who Jesus is to so many people and has prompted them to follow him as well. But his journey didn't start with the big things that we remember him for. It started with a walk in the park. It started with an average, everyday conversation. And it was the faithfulness of his two friends in the little things the walk in the park, love for their friend, that prompted something in C.S. Lewis that went well beyond what they could ever hope or imagine. And so at the heart of C.S. Lewis's story is an important truth that we're going to explore here this morning, namely that the God of the Bible, the God who has made himself known to us in the person of Jesus, who has come, who we are compelled and wooed by every Sunday morning when we gather and in our lives, that God, uses sincere living and sharing of faith in the little things, in the small and the everyday. And he uses it for world-altering stories of redemption and restoration. That's the God that we come before and get to hear from this morning. Turn with me in a Bible, if you have one, to the book of 2 Timothy. It's at the back of your Bible towards the end of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, please come up to me after service. Uh, I will get you a Bible. It's on me. We want to make sure that you have the ability to... Read with us here on Sunday mornings and read throughout your week. 2 Timothy, I'll be reading uh, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, if you'd like to follow along. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, A faith that lived first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This book of 2 Timothy is an epistle, as scholars call it, which is just a fancy word for a letter. In other words, when we read 2 Timothy, we are reading someone else's mail from thousands of years ago, which is kind of a crude way of putting it, but I think that's helpful for us because I think sometimes the Bible can seem like it's this theological treatise that's been written in a vacuum. We treat it that way sometimes, right? But the reality is the words here, they've been written by real people in real places, moved by a real God, with real stuff going on around them. That's what we believe that this scripture is. And so it's helpful to remember this is a letter. We're reading something that was written by one person to another person. And it's helpful to know who those people are when we read their words. Uh, The person writing this letter, most scholars agree, is Paul. He addresses himself uh, in the verses just before what we read here. And Paul was a prominent missionary. He established churches. He healed people. He preached the good news of Jesus all over the Roman Empire in the first century. But he faced a lot of pushback. It wasn't an easy thing for him. It wasn't smooth sailing all the time. Quite literally in some cases. There were two main groups that he faced pushback from on a regular basis. The first of those groups was was the Roman authorities at the time. Because they weren't fans of this Christianity. Because Christians and Jesus proclaimed that Christ was king and that his kingdom had been initiated by his life, death and resurrection. And when you're saying those sorts of words in a place like Rome, where there's a different king named Caesar, and a different kingdom, which is about Rome first, that's going to ruffle some feathers. And if Christians actually started to live that way in the first century, it could shake up the whole social order. It could change things in powerful ways. And so the Romans weren't a fan of Paul and this message. He was regularly arrested and harassed. And he's actually writing this letter from prison. And he actually says later on in this letter that he doesn't think he's going to get out this time. He thinks that this might be the end of his journey. It turns out that this is the last letter that we have from our friend Paul in the scriptures. So that's the first group that he faced opposition from. But the second group was actually religious people. He faced opposition from within, people who disagreed on who Jesus really was and who taught differently about Jesus's life. And those people didn't have in mind the love and grace of Jesus as Paul was preaching it. They had in mind a different agenda that oftentimes was more for their selfish gain and benefit. And so Paul is writing this letter to Timothy with all of that going on, with all that opposition happening around him. And we should start to ask, well, who's Timothy then? right? Why is Paul writing this to his friend Timothy? Well, Timothy was a young Christian in the first century who had journeyed with Paul through some of his missionary work. And as Timothy had started to develop a bit of experience, he was sent by Paul to a town called Ephesus. And Ephesus was somewhere that Paul had already been. He'd planted a few churches there, but recently in Ephesus, there were some corrupt teachers that were uh, arising in the church and attempting to kind of rip the church away from the real message of Jesus. They were moving communities away from him in order to elevate themselves. They were trying to overpower this new movement and use it for their gain. They were arrogant, self-righteous, greedy, swindling people out of their money for their particular message of who Jesus was. Does that sound familiar? See, the unfortunate reality is that those same dynamics that Paul and Timothy had to grapple with in their day, we often have to grapple with today as well. There are all sorts of people in our world right now that take and use Jesus for their own benefit, for their own elevation, for their own power, for their own greed. And so if you or someone you love has experienced that in your time in the church or near the church, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I get the response that we sometimes want to have. Sometimes we just want to throw the church out, right? It's been corrupted. Let's, let's push Jesus. Let's push this whole church thing back. Let's move on and find something new. I understand that tendency to push the pain and, and bury it behind us. But... I think before we do that, before we throw away the church because of the times that it's been corrupted, we should ask ourselves an important question. Is it the church that does these things, or are they inherently human things? Is it the church that's been corrupted by things like greed and power and envy, or are those human things? And I think the answer is easily found in the world around us. All we have to do is look at the other institutions, the other structures of our world to find this is not a church thing. It's a human thing. Our politics, okay. our art, our relationships, our education, our health care, our, our, all of our systems that we've built have been corrupted in some way. And those ugly dynamics, when we see them in our world, they aren't just religious. They're human. And so our question, when we realize that truth, shouldn't be, Where's the place where we can go that gets rid of all this corruption? Where's the place we can go that is free, that is perfect? Because the answer, quite clearly, is nowhere in our world. There's nowhere we can go that's free of those corruptions. The better question we should ask ourselves is, where can we go where that corruption is named, where it's healed, and where it's restored? That's what we're longing for. That's the question that we should ask ourselves. And that's the job of the church. That's what Jesus has called us to be as a community of people. That's what the church is called in the world to be. It's the place where those ugly dynamics that we see everywhere get reversed. It's the place where pride can be transformed into humility. It's the place where power grabbing becomes servanthood and service. It's the place where greed becomes generosity. This thing we do every Sunday, this thing that we do in our gathered spaces throughout the week, it's not a place for people to brag about how great they are. It's not a place where people are perfect. It's a place where hurting and limping people show up to be healed. That's what the church is. And it's a place where we can go, those perfect and limping people, out into a world to heal. That's what Jesus has called us to be. And when the church doesn't do that, it's not being the church. It's failing in its job. And Timothy is trying to get us back in his day to that sort of church, to that sort of living, but he's facing all sorts of corruption around him. And he's discouraged by it, as we can often be, right? It can feel hard to be the sort of person who's trying to bring out life and redemption and restoration in a world that seems to not want it, and in religious circles that don't seem to want it. And Paul here responds to Timothy. He actually mentions first that he knows what he's feeling. He says, I recall your tears in verse 4. Timothy is struggling with the question for him that his small actions can actually make any real difference in things. Can his little life actually change the course of things that he sees around him? And that's the same sort of question that we ask of ourselves today. Can God really use my small actions, my little sort of life, to transform things right around me. And Paul's response to this concern is encouragement. And it's not the sort of encouragement that sometimes we think, where we just kind of circumvent the hard things, where we go around it and just say, no, it's all fine. You're going to be fine. It's not the silver lining conversation. Paul is in the middle of the corruption right now. He's writing this from prison. He's been stoned. He's been run out of town. He's narrowly escaped with his life. He knows the corruption that exists, and yet he seems encouraged by Timothy. Why? Why in the world would he see encouragement in the middle of a world that's broken? Why does he have confidence in Timothy? Well, he mentions nothing of Timothy's dynamic speaking ability. I can tell you that in this passage. He doesn't talk about uh, Timothy's brilliant marketing strategy. He doesn't talk about how effectively he's going to brand Jesus for the culture. He instead mentions something in verse 5 called sincere faith. He's confident and encouraged by Timothy's sincere faith. And so that should make us ask, when we're trying to battle those corruptions that exist in our world, what does Paul mean by sincere faith? What's he referring to here? The the word that he uses for sincere, it's a play on the word hypocrite, which is a word many of us are familiar with. He's essentially saying that Timothy's faith is non-hypocritical, that it's a-hypocritical. And in the Greek culture in which Paul was writing, a hypocrite actually was a stage actor. It was someone who performed in front of other people. The word itself literally is translated an interpreter from underneath because stage actors often wore masks. And so the real person spoke from behind a veil, from behind a covering. Their public persona was different than their private life. And Paul is saying here that Timothy lives the opposite of that way with his faith. He lives a maskless faith. His trust in Jesus runs to the very core of his being and informs everything he does, every conversation, every interaction. It's the sort of faith that shows up here on Sunday mornings, but also prays alone in your room to your Father. It's the sort of faith that speaks in your words and moves in your compassion and your service to other people. It's the sort of faith that cries out to God from the pit of despair and praises God from the peak of gratitude. Paul is reminding Timothy here that he has that sort of faith, that non-hypocritical way of living. But he doesn't just stop with Timothy in this passage. His confidence in that sincere faith is not just rooted in Timothy, it's rooted in the people that surround him and the people that have raised him up. Timothy's genuine, non-hypocritical faith, it doesn't arrive by accident. It's not just a fabrication of his mind, and he didn't white-knuckle his way to it. He didn't effort his way into this sort of faith. It's a faith that came long before Timothy ever existed. It's a faith that surrounds him and other people. It's a faith that's been passed down to him, generation by generation. Paul first hints at this back in verse 3. He mentions the word ancestors, referring to the faith that has come long before them. Paul was Jewish, and so he's referring back to the Old Testament scriptures here, these texts that we actually have. He's referring back to the the people who in their day-to-day grind, in their small, seemingly insignificant lives, chose to trust in God. And God worked in that trust, in that sincere faith in powerful ways. He's helping Timothy remember people like Abraham, like Moses, like Deborah, like Ruth, like David, like Esther. The list goes on and on of these names. The very same faith, and the very same God that has sustained those people now sustains Timothy. And so we're learning from Paul here that none of us live this life of faith alone. None of us are on an island manufacturing this faith in our brains, and the proof is in this room right now. Take a second and look around at the people around you. Actually, look. Turn your heads. Look at the people around you. Remember the stories of the people who you know in this room. That same faith that calls and woos you to Jesus, it has called and wooed everyone else in this room in some way or another. It's not an invention of your mind. It surrounds you all the time. It's been passed down to you. You get to participate in something so much bigger than yourself. And it doesn't stop in this room. See, this community that we call the Spring Midtown, this little kingdom outpost in central Phoenix, it's part of millions of communities across thousands of cultures and languages that have the same sort of sincere faith, that are drawn to Jesus in the same way. The author of the book of Hebrews in our New Testament calls this a great cloud of witnesses, this great expanse of people who have been transformed by Jesus. There's a a famous painting I wanted to share with you guys that I think illustrates this effectively. It's called Paradiso. A cloud of of witnesses here surrounding Jesus. This was painted by a guy in the 14th century, Gusto de Menaboy. And what's interesting about it, it's, it's so expansive, so far reaching, that the people in the middle there, well, you can't even really make out their faces, right? It's as if they're all coming together, this massive gathering of people who have been transformed by the love and grace of Jesus. It's this picture that, that Paul is hearkening back to here. and so we learn that we are part, when we follow Jesus, of this ever-growing, multicultural, diverse, and unified family of believers. People who are constantly, daily transformed by the love of Jesus and who encourage and affirm one another in that sort of faith. That's the picture that Paul is giving us here. That's the picture he's encouraging Timothy with. But he doesn't just stop by remembering those giants of the faith, those big stories that we remember in scripture, like Abraham and Moses. He actually shows how that same faith has been passed on to Timothy's grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice. And so we learn that the invitation to participate in this sort of sincere faith, the invitation to be in this family of God, it's not just broad and grand like that image. It is that, but it's not just that. It's also personal and specific. It doesn't just come in the form of these legendary and famous stories. It comes in the small and everyday stories of people you know, of people you love, of people who have poured into you in one way or another. And I think that's an important truth today first for our mothers, or soon to be mothers in this room. Lois and Eunice are reminders to each of you that your faith in the little things matters profoundly in ways that you can't even perceive or picture yet, right now. Think about it for Lois and Eunice. Do you think when they changed Timothy's diapers, they were considering how their grandson and son would become one of the forefathers of this new Christian movement? Do you think that when they told Timothy stories of faithfulness from scripture, stories from their life, when they exemplified this sort of faith, do you think they had in mind that Christianity would blossom and change billions of people's lives? Do you think that when they gave up their time, their sacrifice for their neighbors and their family members, do you think that they were aware their names would be remembered thousands of years later to be read and encourage us? No. They didn't know those things. They believed that God could do those things, certainly. They trusted that God could work that way, but they weren't aware how he would do that. They weren't aware in every little moment They simply had sincere faithfulness to God. Over the course of their little lives, they chose to love and serve him faithfully as mothers in their vocation. And God used that everyday sincere faith in powerful ways that they couldn't even imagine. And I think this is a needed reminder for us, because our Christian culture and our culture in general likes to talk about things that move fast and that are big. We love the big and fast things, not the long and slow things. And so in the church, we've allowed this to uh, kind of inform how we do things. We throw around big words like impact or influence. We have entire churches that are built on celebrity pastors that are looking to expand their platform, right? Expand their reach. But that's not what Paul is emphasizing in this passage. And that's not what he emphasized in his own life. He's bringing up Lois and Eunice here, I think, as an answer to this tendency that we have to want to do the big thing and to want to see all of the bigness of the thing that we're doing. See, Lois and Eunice, they weren't concerned with how their faithfulness to God might expand their platform because it wasn't about their platform. They weren't concerned about big public faith displays in order to show how impressive they were because it wasn't about how impressive they were. It was about the God that they worshiped. It was about the redeeming and restoring God of the universe. All we know of them is this, that they had sincere faith in their lives, that they lived that faith out in their vocation as mothers. And that faith moved in ways they could hardly see or believe. When I was younger, I used to have some recurring sorts of nightmares uh, that usually related with open water and sharks, which are rational things to be afraid of, I understand, as a kid. And I understand why I was afraid of them. But I would often wake up, as you do from nightmares, and not be able to go back to sleep. I'd have trouble falling back to sleep. And I remember one particular evening, uh, I couldn't sleep after one of these nightmares, so I decided to walk down the hallway to my parents' bedroom. And I was little, so I was looking out for sharks who might peek around the corner right, or poke out of the closet. And then I walk into my parents' room, slowly open the door. They're snoozing soundly. I walk over to my mom, and I gently tap her shoulder. And she wakes up, as most mothers do, right? deeply from like a coma because they've had to rest from all of the ways that they've loved their kids. And I told her I I had a bad dream. I can't sleep. And so she sat up and rubbed the, the sleep from her eyes. She blinked her eyes open and she touched my back and walked me back to my room. She had me lay back down in bed and tucked me in. And then she prayed with me in the middle of the night. She prayed these words from Philippians 4:8. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is excellence in anything and anything worthy of praise, think about those things. And then she said amen and walked out. And I was able to fall asleep because I knew I'd encountered the peace and love of Jesus in that moment. And my mom may not remember this specific story. She probably remembers a, a flurry of these stories, waking up in the middle of the night. But I remember it because it reminded me this woman had sincere faith, faith that in the middle of the night, when she was likely a little bit angry and frustrated at me for waking her up, she trusted that God was at work there. She believed that Jesus was near to her, was near to me. And that sort of faithfulness sparked something in me. It did something in me. It drew me to the sort of God that she was following. And so to our moms in this room on Mother's Day, or soon-to-be moms, your sincere faith as a parent matters. The sleepless nights matter, and the prayers and the scripture reading matter. They matter so much that you can't even picture it right now, but there's a giant cloud of witnesses that reminds us they matter. And with all that said... I also think it's worth remembering on Mother's Day the fact that this isn't easy for many of us. Mother's Day isn't the same for every person here. Maybe you've wanted to be a mom for a while and have had trouble. Maybe you've lost your mom or you have a rough relationship with your mom. Maybe you don't even feel called to be a mom in the first place. Maybe God is calling you somewhere else. And so women who are in this room hear these words. Paul, in this passage, is not saying that your specific calling is absolutely to be a mother. He's not saying that the highest calling is motherhood or that you are reserved purely for childbearing. That's not what he's saying here. Instead, he's pointing out Lois and Eunice as examples, not because they're mothers, but because they had sincere faith. That's the thing that he's pointing out here. It's not about the fact that they were mothers. It's about how they mothered. That's the point he's bringing up. And so while their vocation may have been motherhood, your vocation might be something radically different. God calls every person in this room to sincere faith wherever they are, in whatever they're doing, in their current and precise location. And so if that's true, every single one of us can become like Lois and Eunice, and not just by birthing children. We can become like them because we have this integrated and sincere faithfulness to Jesus that moves in every part of our lives, and that we learn how to trust in the little things over and over and over. Because we believe in a God that uses little moments like that in huge ways. Eugene Peterson, I think, puts this really profoundly in his book Run With the Horses. He says this, the only opportunity you will ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you're provided this very day, this house you live in. This family you find yourself in. This job you've been given. The weather conditions that prevail at this moment. Friends, we worship a God that takes the small and daily actions, the little things in life, and uses them in profound ways. And when we realize that that's who God is, something starts to happen in us. When we recognize that Jesus is working in all those parts of our lives, it starts to, Paul says, rekindle something. That's the encouragement he gives Timothy in verse 6. Rekindle the gift of God by remembering this sort of sincere faith that you participate in. And it reminded me, actually, the word itself, rekindle, it talks about uh, or refers to fanning a flame that started to die out. And it reminded me of uh, this, which looks like nothing to you. Looks like a little twig. But this isn't any twig. This is a magic twig. Because this twig has been mined from deep within a pine tree, where a particular resin is produced on the wood. And that resin enables this little piece of wood to burn particularly hot and for a particularly long period of time. This is a fire starter, this little piece. If I lit this up and piled logs around it strategically and effectively, it would start a fire that could make every one of us s'mores in this room right now which doesn't sound as great. It's Phoenix in May. I get it. But you understand the point. This little, seemingly useless piece can start a raging fire. When we entrust the little things of our lives to Jesus, he starts to work all around us in everything we do, starting little fires everywhere. And I look around this room, and I see a bunch of fire starters, not twigs. Not little pieces of wood, but teachers, architects, financial advisors, nurses, lawyers, baristas, bartenders, mothers, fathers, parents and non-parents, singles and married. I see a room full of people that if they trusted deeply enough that Jesus can work in their lives, they could do profound things. Jesus could use each and every one of us in the little faithfulness all the time, because that's who he is. That's what he's been doing for thousands of years. Paul talks about this characteristic of Jesus in Philippians 2. He says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, but instead emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. The God of the universe when he chose to redeem and restore everything, when he chose to step into the brokenness and the corruption, he chose to live a small life in the person of Jesus. He chose to come to earth as a child. He chose to live 30 years. He chose to die on a cross and rise again in that small sort of life. And Paul says that that God has now elevated Jesus because of that small life he lived and that he's redeeming everything through him. That's the Jesus that we worship. That's the Jesus that we're drawn to. That's the sort of life that we're called to as Christians. And so I actually want to give each of you in this room and each of you watching online a small task this week. It's homework. Sorry. School year is almost done. Just a little bit of homework. Pick two people in your life. Two people who have encouraged you by their sincere faith in some way or another. It could be a family member, coworker, friend, somebody at this church, someone in your community group, somebody whose faithfulness has encouraged you in some way. And shoot them a text or give them a call this week and remind them of the gifts that God has given them. Help them rekindle the things that are in them. Affirm those gifts. And then encourage them to look out for the ways that God might use those today and tomorrow and the day after that affirm those gifts and show them, remind them how God works, how he's worked always. Help them spark those gifts in their interaction, in their work, in their life. Because if we really chose to do this for one another, if all of us in this room decided to encourage each other in this sort of sincere faith, God could change this city, this state, this country. God has done it before. He can do it again. He can show up in all of our little sincere Faithful lives. So once again, look around this room. Really look at the people around you right now. I can see you. I know if you're not. (laughs) Remember their stories. Remember their gifts. It's a lot of fire starters, friends. That's a lot of fire here. Would you pray with me?